As you turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 7, I would ask that you also prepare your heart to receive God's Word this evening and to do that through prayer with me now. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, what great words to sing. Even so, it is well with my soul. Such encouragement, such strength, such confidence we can have in Christ. Even before the final day. I pray that you would humble us through this message to sanctify us in preparation for that day so that we would look forward to it with even more eagerness because we have turned to your word this evening. Help me to speak your word clearly, to apply it sharply, and to exalt it fittingly. Pray this in your son Jesus. Amen. It was November 14th, 1965, Lieutenant Colonel Hal Moore's worst fears were being realized at this moment. Uh, being, a history of, uh, being a student of history himself, he was seeing history about to repeat itself. Not only was the force under his command, the 7th uh, Cavalry Regiment, completely outnumbered by the opposing enemy force, but they were also surrounded and in a prime position to be destroyed. The battlefield was, of course, in the highlands of Vietnam. It was in the thick of the Vietnam War. And for years, the U.S. forces had been trying to crack the code of logistics for battle. Finally, they thought they had found a new weapon that would change the war completely. Colonel Moore and his regiment would ride into battle, but on a new kind of war horse. Gone, they hoped, were the days of the war horse, the beasts of burdens that rode into battle, who Custer himself, who led the very same 7th Regiment, rode on into battle and into disaster in the Battle of Little Bighorn, which was over a hundred years prior to this moment. His force also had been, a hundred years prior, cut off and surrounded and was wiped out because of Custer's pride and arrogance. Such horses and such trucks were necessary for battle. They provided the, the army with the logistics and supplies they needed, but they also required lengthy and consuming defenses in their supply lines that they created. But, but no longer. Colonel Moore and his troops were now going to ride into battle on the new war horse, the helicopter. But Colonel Moore was also entering into a similar problem that Custer, his counterpart, also faced. He was outnumbered and surrounded. The enemy force also seemed to have unlimited soldiers at its disposal. How did all of this come to be? How did this happen? 
They flew to their location as scheduled early in the morning with simple directions. Their, their orders were to find and destroy the enemy. They had no idea how many the enemy would number or where they really were. They just had a, uh, a star on the map saying, this is where we think the enemy is. And for the few first hours, it seemed as though there were no enemy soldiers in sight. And as a matter of fact, it was beginning to feel a lot like one of Colonel Moore's famous training exercises. But Colonel Moore, once again, was a student of history. And he also had fixed in the minds of his own men certain phrases of memorable philosophy that came to his aid at this point. And he is famous for in this moment when nothing seemed to be the matter, saying to himself those words that he had drilled into his soldier's head for hours and hours, and this is the quote, famous quote, when there's nothing wrong, there is nothing wrong, except there's nothing wrong. That's exactly when a leader needs to be the most alert. Well, his instincts proved all too correct. They captured a deserter, and from this man, this member of the NVA, the North Vietnamese Army, and through a translator, they heard him say, uh, he says there are three battalions on that mountain over there who want very much to kill Americans but have not been able to find any yet. As it turns out, it was a deceiving calm as Colonel Moore was suspicious of. In the end, the battle was a hard-fought battle over three harrowing days and two torturous nights of fighting. But the U.S. forces under Colonel Moore arose victorious from this battle because of the alertness and anticipation of their commanding officer and also another thing, the superior air, uh, air power of the U.S. Air Force, But as we turn to Joshua 7, I want to tell you tonight that Joshua and Israel is in the same situation or very similar circumstance that Colonel Moore was in. They were experiencing a deceiving calm. They were walking blind into enemy territory and had no idea about the enemy that was surrounding them. Nothing was wrong in Joshua 7 verse 1 except that nothing was wrong. Now, I I should say also that Israel has great reason for confidence at this point. I mean, just think about all of the things they've experienced and seen have been told up until this point. Up to this point, the, the waters of the Jordan had stood up like a wall before them and they marched right through. And up to this point, the walls of Jericho had fallen flat like water before them. And the very hearts and minds of all the Canaanites that opposed them melted like water as well. They heard this from a report from one of the inhabitants of Jericho itself, Rahab's report in Joshua 2, 10 and 11. She says this, We have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, 
who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. Indeed, we heard it, and our hearts melted, and a courageous spirit no longer rose up in any man because of you. For Yahweh, your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. That's an amazing statement by a Canaanite of all people and a Canaanite prostitute of all people. Yahweh is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And we also get a sense of how the Canaanites were feeling towards the Israelites when we turn over to Joshua 5 verse 1. It says this, Now it happened when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how Yahweh had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, that their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. See the pattern? Melt, melt, melt. And then, and then in one, the pattern continues... The only thing the Canaanites can do as they hear about this God of the Israelites is hide in fear. 6 verse 1 tells us, Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. The Canaanites were terrified. Nothing could stand against this God of the Hebrews, not their glorious river and not their glorious walls. He was giving this land to his people and no gods, not a god in heaven or on earth could stand against him. So Israel had cause to be very confident when you come to Roman or to Joshua 7. By the way, don't let the the category of history in your Bible um, discourage you or distract you or confuse you. Uh, the book we're in here, Joshua, is a part of the historical books, but it is much more than history. The author, I would argue, is after more in you and of you than just to tell you about battles and land allotments. You could say this is history with a meddling edge to it. This man wants to do something in you and to convince you of something and to persuade you of something and to paint you into the corner by something. This is, as one of my favorite commentators would say, historical preaching. That's what Joshua is. What is Joshua preaching? His basic message, the basic message of this book, the sermon that is being preached throughout it is this. Our God is great in His faithfulness. Great is the faithfulness of our God. This is the sermon that the book of Joshua is preaching. Now, if you were to cut up Joshua very simply, you could divide it into two parts. You could divide it into Joshua 1 through 12, and then, in Josh, and then between Joshua 13 and 21, Joshua 1 through 12 are the conquest sections of the book. It tells about how Israel conquered all of the inhabitants of the land. Joshua thirteen twenty one talks about the allotment, the land allotment in the book, how God gave all the land to Israel. And to be a little bit nerdy with you, these two books, these two parts of the book, divide up pretty evenly between the two. For example, Joshua 1 through 12 um, is communicated to us in 327 Hebrew lines. 
And Joshua 13 through 21 is communicated to us in 350 lines of Hebrew. It's almost, it's almost the same size, both of these massive chunks. This book is about the conquest and the giving of the land to Israel. And the point in all of this, the, the, the preaching point that the author of Joshua was trying to make, I'm fairly convinced it was Joshua, was that God has been a hundred percent faithful to his promises. He is a promise-keeping God. He has kept promises with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob, and he is fulfilling them even now. By the way, this doesn't mean that all of the Abrahamic covenant promises are being fulfilled in Joshua. I don't even think the author of Joshua would claim that, as you can see when you read through Joshua. But the point is the same. God is a faithful God. But his faithfulness cuts both ways. And you should be careful about this faithful, covenant-keeping God. Now, I told you to turn over to Joshua 7, but that was a mistake, maybe. Turn over to Joshua 21. Just let me show you. Let me just illustrate. Uh, The book of Joshua actually uh, is clearly explained to you in a few verses. And and just mark this in your Bible if you're the Bible-marking type. For the, the big picture of Joshua, whenever you come across these summary statements in a book, I always like to make note of them. Joshua 21, 43 through 44, basically summarizes the entire book of Joshua. It says this, verse 43, So Yahweh gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And Yahweh gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And no one of all their enemies stood before them. Yahweh gave all their enemies into their hand. Notice that. Verse 43 covers Joshua 13 through 21. And verse 44 covers Joshua 1 through 12. The author has now come to the end of his evidence of the faithfulness of God, and he now summarizes his findings. And now he brings out the theological sledgehammer because he wants to drive home the point of the book. What is the point of the book? What is he trying to do? How is he trying to paint you into the corner? Look at verse 45. Not one promise of all the good promises which Yahweh had promised to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. Your God has been faithful. All of his promises have come to pass. You are in the corner by the faithfulness of God. The book of Joshua paints an amazing tale of God's faithfulness, of God's Loving kindness, said loyalty. It is love so amazing. It is love so divine. You look at the book of Joshua, and that's your only conclusion. What amazing divine love that our God has set on us. But this love, this faithfulness cuts both ways. And it is demanding. Turn over to Joshua 24, 24, 14. Joshua 
reveals what this love demands of us. Joshua 24, 14. So now, fear Yahweh and serve Him with integrity and truth and put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve Yahweh. If it is evil in your sight to serve Yahweh, choose for yourself today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. This is what Joshua is preaching. God is faithful. Who will you serve? God has fulfilled all of His promises. Who will you serve? Will you choose the gods who were too weak to defend their people? Or will you serve this God who is faithful? Or you could say it this way. God's faithful, loyal love is so amazing, so divine, it demands my soul, my life, my all. That's what Joshua is preaching. This is a demanding love. Be careful with this God. You better not mess with such faithfulness. You better not mess with such amazing divine love. What does it look like to mess with a God like this? Well, that's what we're going to answer tonight. Now, initially, in chapter 7, Israel is in trouble. They don't know it, but they're in trouble. It's hidden from their eyes at the moment. Look at Joshua 7, verse 2. Now, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out Ai. Then they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up. Only about two or three thousand men need to go to strike down I. Do not have all the people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men from the people went up there, but they fled from the men of I. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Shabiram and struck them down on the descent. So the hearts of the people melted and became as water. What was Israel's problem? What was their trouble? We could pin a few problems that maybe come to mind as you read these few verses. What looks to be their problem? Is their problem perhaps prayerlessness? I mean, if you compare this account to other battle accounts all around, you see an absence a striking absence of prayer to God or of speech and direction from God, don't you? 
There is no pursuit of God at all. There is no one in the camp of Israel saying, hey, let's seek the Lord. That could be the problem. That could be the trouble. But it doesn't seem to be the only problem. The only trouble. Perhaps their problem is overconfidence. According to a troop count in Numbers 26, Joshua had about 600,000 fighting men at his disposal. And we see later on in Joshua 8.25 that I had about 12,000 total people, including women. So Joshua had a lot of people, and Ai was relatively small. And you see in in verse 3 of Joshua... Uh, the spies essentially say, hey, don't, don't cause the entire army to wear themselves out up there. We don't need to waste all of our soldiers on this fight. Don't trouble the whole army. Matter of fact, the word there, weary, could be translated trouble, which is ironic if you ask me. Overconfidence, perhaps. You see that definitely hinted at here just with the language and the the way the narrator kind of breaks things down. But that doesn't seem to be the only problem that we see here. Perhaps it is doubt. Perhaps it is despair. Because we go on and we keep reading verse 6. Look what, what Joshua did. Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of Yahweh until the evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And verse 7, Joshua said, Alas, O Lord Yahweh, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan? Only to give us into the hand of the Amorites, or to make us perish. If only we had been willing to live beyond the Jordan. By the way, that sounds a lot like those spies sounded in Numbers 14, doesn't it? Oh Lord, verse 8, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? The Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Perhaps it was doubt. Perhaps it was despair. Just a few notes here on what we read. The location that they are chased to by the men of Ai, Shabarium, could be possibly referring in a proper name to a rock quarry. The word means quarry of rocks. And that would have been all the way down by the banks of the Jordan, perhaps a two and a half mile flight. This was a two to three mile route by the men of Ai against Israel. And we see also that 36 men fall here in this spot. That might not seem like a lot to you. I mean, come on. You have 600,000 men. Your 36 men is not that much. Matter of fact, I did some math, which is dangerous. Um, and with, compared to the entire attacking force, even on I itself, 36 men is not that much. 36 men is one point. 
2% of their attacking force. And take heart, Joshua, it's only 0.0006% of your entire invading force. I think you can handle 36 men. What's the big deal? Well, it's apparent that 36 men on the casualty list was a lot more than the casualty list at uh, Jericho. And doesn't that show you just the dominance of the nation of Israel at this time? They expected no casualties. They never saw anyone die. 36 was a massive blow. And as a result, we see what their hearts melt. In verse 5, they plummet into despair, defeat, They become like Canaanites, in fact, in their defeat and in their doom and in their gloom. Did you notice that? The same word that refers to the Canaanites' defeat and doubt and despair now refers to the Israelites' despair. And and look at the response of the leaders in in 4 through 9, right? It is clear to Israel's leadership that something is wrong as well. They perform these actions in verse 6 that look like uh, symbols of national mourning and despair. And we see doubt and confusion come through in Joshua's prayer as well, don't we? Notice there's fear. They are going to destroy us now. Notice there's doubt. Where are you, God? It would have been better had we stayed on the other side of the Jordan. There was plenty of land over there. But I would say there's not sin in this prayer. Notice, what is Joshua concerned about in this prayer? The name of the Lord. Matter of fact, this, this reminds us, this reminds us a lot of the previous generation and their faithless praying, but it also shows us what faithful prayer can look like. Numbers 14 was complaining about God, but what do we see here in Joshua 7? This is complaining to God, and that is not a sinful prayer. Matter of fact, it could be that God has orchestrated all of these events to get his people's attention and cause them to come to him in prayer. Ever notice how trials and troubles seem to do that? They make you serious. They make you sober and pursue God. Maybe that's what God wants. But this leads us to our first heading. And yes, there was a heading. Just write this one down. Sin's sobering presence. Sin's sobering presence. Now, as a rule in reading the Bible, whenever the author of the Bible gives you a judgment on the situation, whenever he says, this is what I think, you should not probably heme and ha over all these other ideas for how to apply this. You should, first off, interpret it through the lens that the author wants you to interpret it. And you'll notice that I skipped verse 1. What does it say? Right after Jericho and that amazing victory, what does it say? The sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things devoted to destruction. Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah, he took 
some of the devoted things. Therefore, the anger of Yahweh burned against the sons of Israel. Israel at this moment was at the high point, the climax in their history. God was fulfilling all of his promises. They were seeing walls collapse. They were seeing water stand up like walls before them. They were, they were, they were realizing the faithfulness of their God and being filled with enthusiasm and confidence. And right here at the height At their high point, notice, sin sneaks into their camp. Sounds a lot like Acts 5, if you ask me. When everything is going well, this is where sin lurks. And notice where the sin is found. It is found right in the heart of Israel itself, in the tribe of Judah. And if you're reading the Bible up to this point, you know that Judah is the favored tribe the crown jewel of Israel. Now, is there not a line of application in all of this? Where is your greatest enemy to be found? Often it's right inside of you. Often your greatest enemy is found in a will at the center that disregards God's word and God's will. That can be very dangerous. This is sin's sobering presence, but what's so sobering about sin's presence that we see here? Just just a few thoughts. Uh, Sin's sobering presence can yield, and we should be sober about sin, because it can yield a, uh, a wide variety of consequences in your life. Notice, secret sin in Israel causes them to run in defeat and despair. They have dominating despair, life-altering anxiety. But notice also, secret sin can also lead you to a lack of spiritual alertness and overconfidence at the same time. You disregard prayer. Israel is in the hands of an angry God, though, who will not idly stand by and allow them to continue to let sin remain in their camp. And this is the real reason why this trouble is happening, because Israel has a faithful God on their side who breaks for sin. He is holy and he demands that his people be holy. And he can have no sin in the camp. Sometimes this means he will give you over to an overconfident spirit. Sometimes this means he will give you up to the fears and anxieties of your life. Either way, God will break and work to humble us so that we will go to him. And perhaps there is a lesson here for us. Perhaps we shouldn't just fast and pray when everything is going terrible. Perhaps we should also fast and prayer when we are feeling quite sure of ourselves. Perhaps we should also seek God's will and humble ourselves before Him, even when we think everything in life is going well. We should humble ourselves before God because we can be sure that He will humble us before Him. But notice, the second thing to see in sin's sobering presence is also sin's presence and this should sober us, is not a secret to God. 
I've preached on this passage a lot. And every time I preach on this passage, I am always so intrigued by the fact that the author, who, as you will see, seems to have a, a big joy in drama in slowly revealing who the culprit is, spoils all the drama in the first verse. Don't you know anything about telling stories? At the first verse, he tells us who the problem is. Why does he do that? He seems to be so interested in slowly revealing Achan to us. Why does he reveal him in one verse? Well, I think that God here wants to teach you, his people, something about secret sin. God wants you to see this whole episode through the lens and from the vantage point of God. And secret sin is not secret to him at all. In its very first germinations of its inception, it is clear to God. He sees it all. We should be sober by sin's presence because we know that sin is no secret to God at all. He knows right where you are. He knows right where you sin too. Down to the exact aisle, shelf, and barcode of your particular sin. Are you going to wait for Him to humble you? Or are you going to humble yourself before Him? This should sober us in sin's presence. But let's quickly go on to our, our next heading. Title this one, Sin's Sobering Solution. Sin's Sobering Solution. Verse 10. So Yahweh said to Joshua, Rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have also transgressed against my covenant, which I commanded them, and they have even taken some of the things devoted to destruction and have both stolen and dealt falsely. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot rise before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become devoted to destruction. I will be with you. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things devoted to destruction from your midst. By the way, this whole entire narrative is it's kind of like a, a pyramid, kind of like a chiasm, you could say. It's, it's all building up to one thing, and it parallels all the way up, and then it parallels all the way down as you read through the narrative. And the very center of the narrative itself is this phrase, I will be with you no longer. That is, the, that is the consequence of sin in your life. God is not there. The whole narrative, you could say, turns on these words. It's the center. Sin in the heart of the nation is a big deal because that will crowd out God's presence in their life. And we see this in the life of the believer too, don't we? Ephesians 4 talks about grieving the Spirit. It's living a life that's not full of the Spirit. 
but against the Spirit. Notice the destructive consequences of sin in the camp. Verse 12 tells us that Israel itself has become devoted to destruction. And this is also how we can interpret that phrase we encounter in verse 5, right? That their hearts became like water. They are acting like Canaanites because that is what they have become. They have become like Canaanites. Their fate will be like Canaan unless they pursue radical repentance in their life and from their midst. And right here, we just got to pause for a minute and answer a few questions. What does it mean to be devoted to destruction? What does it mean to become Canaanite? Well, the Canaanites were the people under judgment. Uh, They were the people of the land that the Lord was dispossessing before the people of Israel. The Lord was giving all of this land to his people. Deuteronomy 6.11 specifically says how he will do this. He says, you will find houses full of all good things which you did not fill and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards, olive trees which you did not plant, and you will eat and you will be satisfied. There's, there's something very important to, to understand here. God was giving them not only the land, but he was giving them houses and vineyards full of provision. And there's a funny little thought here as well. Israel was going in during the harvest season when all of these vines, all of these orchards would, orchards would be full of fruit. Israel did not or was not commanded to destroy everything in sight. That's why archaeology doesn't find a whole decimated landscape in sight. Israel was commanded to destroy all the inhabitants of the land and take their things for themselves. Destroy all the objects of worship and all the inhabitants, which were worshipers of these objects. That's what Israel was called to do. And then they were called to enjoy the Canaanites' land. And in Jericho, where Israel just was, and defeated was a symbolic first Canaanite city of sorts. And this city was to be kind of a first fruits given to God. This is the first, this is the first fortress that I will take out. And I want you to completely devote everything to me. Therefore, you're going to do something different. You're going to destroy this city and burn it to the ground and leave nothing remaining. And all the gold and all the silver that can't be burned, you will give to me and to my dwelling place. But this is a, an exception to the rule. This is the place where Israel can't take spoil. They can take spoil from everywhere else. Matter of fact, this is what you see Joshua reminding Israel of in, in Joshua six eighteen. As for you, only keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. That's everything in this case. Lest, as you are devoting them to destruction you also take some of the things devoted to destruction and make the camp of Israel devoted to destruction and bring trouble on it. Right before Israel is about to go in and conquer Jericho, God gives them one last warning. Make sure you obey my word. And I like to joke with students, this is exactly like your parents when you're going to Disneyland, and right as you're in the parking lot of Disneyland, they stop you in the car and you say, hey, we're, we're going to have a lot of fun in Disneyland, aren't we? Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too myself. Even, even maybe even those, those spinning teacups, maybe. But do you want to know how you can ruin this day? 
by disobedience. We will get right back in this car and we will go right back home. No teacups or anything. Before we enter this promised land, be sure you know how you can ruin this promised land. It's through disobedience. It's through rejection of my word and my will. It's for disregarding me and my holiness. So Israel's sin here is a shocker in that it, it, it wasn't a sin it wasn't a fault brought on them by some, you know, mosaic technicality. This, this, Israel wasn't in trouble because one of the Israelites accidentally touched a dead body thinking he was asleep. Whoops. And now God's angry and we don't know why. This is a sin of direct rebellion against God because God just told them, do not take any of the things from Jericho. You can have the rest of the land, but don't take anything from Jericho. This is God's clear, recent commandment. But another question here before we move on. Why are the Canaanites receiving this severe judgment? Well, if you've been reading at all in the Bible up to this point, you know exactly why. The pages of Scripture are full of the justification for this judgment up to this point. Matter of fact, this is a promised judgment. Centuries in the making in Genesis 15, 6, God is promising the land to Abraham and saying, not yet, for the iniquity of the Amorites, which is kind of a, a place word for all of the Canaanites in the land, the iniquity of the Ammonites is not yet complete. God's patience was waiting year after year, decade after decade. Will they repent? Will they humble their heart before me? And this is also a just judgment that we see. The Canaanites served every and any God that they could think of or feel. And all of it was done to advance their own personal aims as well. Their land was full of every kind of sexual perversion at this point. If you don't believe me, read Leviticus 18. As a matter of fact, they were so desperate for prosperity, they were willing to do anything to get the God's favor. They were even willing to sacrifice in, in a burnt offering their own children to somehow woo the gods into paying attention to them and giving them material prosperity. Mankind, by the way, hasn't really advanced much morally, have they? If you think about it. Here, Israel is called to bring judgment on a very sinful people that has been despising God. And here, Israel, even in dishing out judgment, is receiving a lesson, I would say, as well. This is what sin will do. It will take you down this road. So we read, in Joshua 6.21, they devoted to destruction everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. They were faithful to obey, at least in part. But this brings us one more question before we continue on in Joshua 7. And the question is this, what kind of God is this who would slaughter so many destroy so many people, young and old, men and women. What kind of a God is this? Well, in a word, He's a holy God. A holy God who is separate from sin. 
Isaiah 6.3, what are the seraphim shouting day in, day out before the throne of God? They say, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Or Psalm 5.4, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil does not sojourn with you. God is holy and demands holiness of His people if they are going to be His people. He is a holy God, separate from sin. He is also a righteous God who must judge sin and sinners. Deuteronomy 32.4 The rock, His work, is perfect, for all His ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is He. God's righteousness and perfection even stands in the judgment scenes that he decrees right here before our eyes. God is perfect. The God who declares this judgment is perfect and righteous in it. For we are sinners. Psalm 9, 7-8, through 8, Yahweh abides forever. He has established His throne for judgment, and He will judge the world in righteousness. He will render justice for the peoples with equity. If God doesn't judge sinners who despise him, he wouldn't be righteous. And all mankind stands before this unholy and just God who is perfectly just and righteous to judge them on day one of their sin or on day 300 of their sin. God is just and perfect in all of his ways, worthy to be worshipped in all of his judgments. This is the state of the Canaanites. They are condemned sinners before a holy God. They are living in active rebellion. Remember Joshua 5 verse 1. What are they doing before this God? They are shutting themselves in and keeping anyone from going out. They do not want to humble themselves and go to this God and beg for mercy. Because they are in active rebellion to him. And this, this has become the condition of Israel. They have become sinners in the hands of an angry God. It's no wonder their hearts melt. And what's the only solution? God makes a way. Verse 13, rise up, set the people apart as holy and say, set yourselves apart as holy for tomorrow. For for thus Yahweh, the God of Israel, has said, there are things devoted to destruction in your midst, O Israel. You cannot rise before your enemies until you have removed the things devoted to destruction from your midst. In the morning then, you shall come near by your tribes. And it will be that the tribe which Yahweh takes by lot shall come near by families. And the family which Yahweh takes shall come near by households. And the household which Yahweh takes shall come near man by man. And it will be that the one who is taken 
with the things devoted to destruction shall be burned with fire, he and all that belongs to him, because he has trespassed against the covenant of Yahweh, and because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. Notice here what's, what's happened. They're going to be taking some lots, casting lots. Matter of fact, notice the italics in your Bible takes by lot. The italics in your Bible indicates a little context that the translators are giving you to help furnish some sort of an interpretation of what the one word in Hebrew is giving you, which is takes, but the only word there is just takes. It's not takes by lot. So basically, literally, the translation is it's only the one whom Yahweh takes. Now, the, the process of, of casting lots, nobody really knows what it looked like. Some people think what it looked like was the, the priest who had an ephod would reach blindly into the ephod and take one of two stones out. One stone was, col- was colored white and the other one was colored black. And whatever the stone was, that would indicate yes or no from the Lord. But nobody really knows. We just kind of piece that together from the different verses we have about this practice. But notice, it's almost as if the narrator wants to picture something more frightening than even that. The word is harsher than the one that would normally be used for uh, taking by lot. Taken, actually, is most commonly used to refer to capturing or hunting an animal. This person is being hunted. And notice this, the subject before each verb, taken, taken, taken. What is it? It's, it's, it's Yahweh. Yahweh is hunting a sinner in the camp of Israel. Once again, throughout this all, Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. Who is in control of this entire process? Who has been in control in this entire chapter? It's been Yahweh in his knowledge and now in his activity. It's Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. But it still requires man's obedient involvement. They must gather together. And there's a, a line of application here for us as well, I suppose. You need to be serious about sin if you want to deal with sin in your life the way God wants to deal with sin. You need to be soberly serious, in fact. And this leads to our next heading, sin's sobering discovery. Sin's sobering discovery. Verse 16, So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near by tribes. And the tribe of Judah, the crown jewel, the best tribe, was taken. And he brought the family of Judah near. And the family of the Zarahites And he brought the family of the Zarahites near man by man. And Zabdi was taken. Remember what I said about how much fun the narrator has in in exposing the sinner? This This is the edge of your seat. Suspense. I can't believe it. How could it be them? How could it be him? Never would have guessed.
And he brought his household at Zabdi near, man by man. And Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to Yahweh, the God of Israel, and give praise to Him, and declare to me now, Oh, what you have done! Do not hide it from me. So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly, I have sinned against Yahweh, the God of Israel, and this This is what I did. I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight. Then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was concealed in his tent with the silver underneath it. And they took them from inside the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the sons of Israel, and they poured them out before Yahweh. The Lord gets his man every time. Now, it might be helpful just for a moment, talk about the spoil here. What is it that Achan found? It was so compelling to sin against his God. First off, he finds a beautiful mantle from Shinar. Now, I'm not a fashion guru, but I wouldn't be tempted by a beautiful mantle from Shinar. It doesn't sound beautiful to me. But in the day... It came from the land of Shinar, which was the land of Babylon, which was quite the opulent place to be from. It might have even been a fringed Babylonian robe, which would be used more for showing status than for actually covering you. It was kind of a means of showing off wealth, like how people these days like to wear expensive shoes or fancy watches. I need to show my wealth. 200 shekels of silver would be about five to six pounds of silver. A single bar of gold, literally a tongue of gold, it says in the Hebrew, is about a pound and a half of gold. And you get a picture here of a very small bundle. That's all it is, just a a little small bundle. But when you add up all the net worth, this would be worth what would take the average worker a lifetime to accumulate. This was a lifetime's wage in such a small, concealable package. 
We see here it was the sin of materialism, right? Silver and gold. But it was also the sin of pride here as well, right? He wants to present himself as someone who is affluent and successful and rich. Now we should rub our noses a little bit in Aiken's desires here to find some application, I would think. Notice a few things, a few lessons you learn about sin and temptation, even from the language that, that Aiken uses. First off, first lesson you learn, shocker of shockers, is this. Sin is, write this down, tempting. Sin is tempting. I'll be set for life. People will... Look up to me. That is tempting. But notice also, sin is irrational. Sin is irrational. Just how is Achan going to wear this mantle of Shinar and not have anyone ask a question? And don't tell me. Don't even tell me. He's like, counting on future booty to take and then to say, hey, I just found all of this in all of the other cities. That would mean that he is believing God's promises that he is going to get a lot of treasure and he's going to be able to hide this treasure among that treasure. Sin is irrational. What is he going to do when his friends say, hey, Achan, where did you get that? But sin also is first internal. That's what you see here. Sin is internal. Notice a few items about Achan's confession that are striking, that are striking. I saw. I coveted. And I took. This is biblical language. Strikingly biblical language. Matter of fact, this is breaking the top ten. Deuteronomy 5.21, you shall not what? Covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male slave, or his female slave, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Notice, Achan speaks about his sin. The very ways God speaks about his sin, the very vocabulary that God uses, Achan has a mind that's filled with the law of God. He knew it was sin. He even understood the process of sin, and he still succumbed. That'd be a lesson, right? The knowledge of sin is no protection in and of itself. Just knowing God's Word is no protection in and of itself against the desires of sin. And notice his language is very similar to two other sinners that we've encountered in the Bible. Where have we heard these words before? I saw, I coveted, I took. Genesis 3. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, so she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Notice, you, when, when, you, when you sin, you sin from the inside out. Every time... Coveting, it's a word that refers to desires from within. 
It could be a desire for something good like marriage, or it could be a desire for something that God has placed off limits in your life. Desiring is a coveting, a desire, a delight from within. And, and think about this. Think about this. What was Achan's sin? Achan's sin didn't start with something that he took out of Jericho, was it? Achan's sin began with something that he took into Jericho, wasn't it? He took into Jericho a heart that was dissatisfied with his God. A heart that was distrusting of God's goodness, God's wisdom, God's faithfulness. He took that into Jericho. He said to himself, perhaps, God is holding back something good from me and from my life that would make me really happy right now. He said to himself, God has not been as good as he should have been all of these days of the wilderness. The first opportunity I have to take care of myself, I am going to take it. Because God has not been faithful. Sin sprouts in the heart soil of suspicion and doubt of God. And sin is also killed in the heart soil of belief and trust that comes from worship and thankfulness. That is the heart from which sin sprouts. And that is the heart from which sin is destroyed. Next heading. Sin's sobering judgment. Verse 24. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him. And all that belonged to him. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. By the way, did, did you see? Did you see how much stuff Achan had? He had a lot of stuff. He was pretty secure. God had actually kind of blessed him, right? Achan was not a poor man, was he? Covetousness and greed are not poor people problems, are they? But now he and his precious mantle and his precious silver and his precious bar of gold are being taken with his sons and his daughters and all that he belongs. Verse 25, Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? Yahweh will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And this leads to sin-sobering remembrance. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day. And Yahweh turned from his burning anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley 
of Achor to this day. Question for you. Does that not trouble you? It should. This chapter is meant to trouble you. It was purposed to trouble you. This is the inspiration of God fixed on troubling you. This is a God who always breaks for sin. And let me suggest three ways in which this account is meant, inspired to trouble you. First off, be troubled by sin's origin. Be troubled by sin's origin. This is the the main point of the, the, the passage, isn't it? Right? Sin is dangerous. That's the point. Sin is dangerous. And it's especially dangerous because of where the desires come from. You are not waging war against an external enemy alone, but you are fighting against internal treason from within. Sin is dangerous because of where it comes from. It comes from within. There is nothing, is there, more duping or beguiling of a desire that you think comes from yourself. I thought it. It must be true. I feel this way. It must be who I am. But what does the Bible say about the origin of sin? James 4, 1 through 4. Where does all this anger, where does this fighting, where does all of this come from? It comes from within. Pleasures within. James 4, 1 says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source of... Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. And in verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as an enemy of God. Notice, internal passions are dangerous and they can make you an enemy of God and a friend of this world. Or James 1.14 says you are tempted by your lusts. He says, verse he says, verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away, not by God, but he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Sin is dangerous. It's a simple point. Sin is dangerous because of where it comes from. It is a silent, inward killing cancer that is sneaky. It is a silent, growing weed that corrupts your yard from within. Sin is dangerous but this danger also points to a contrasting hope that god provides us in the gospel and in the new covenant 
There is an opposite application here as we look into the devastation of the origin of sin, isn't there? This passage also points to the reality and the power of walking in the Spirit of our God. Your behavior is an expression of your heart. That is what the Bible tells you. Everything comes from within, out of the fountains of your heart. And true change will only happen in your life when your affections and your desires are arrested by the Word of God through the power of the Spirit. And true transformation can happen. Because this is what the Holy Spirit does in the New Covenant. It renews your mind. It changes your heart. It directs your will. And you can walk in obedience through delightful dependence on the Spirit. What is your current attitude towards God? Is it a close affection with God, full of thanks and joy and worship? Or are you distant, full of distrust, full of doubt, full of fear and anxiety in following God? Know for sure that your actions will follow your affections. When you say that God has not been good to me, the next time I get a chance to be good to me, be sure you will get a chance. And you will follow your affections. We should be troubled by sin's origin. But here's another thought, another way in which this this passage is meant to trouble you. You should also be troubled by sin's consequence too. Not only is sin dangerous, got that point, but sin also brings devastating, devastating consequences to your life. It is like a weed in how a weed never stays where it's planted, does it? It grows. It spreads. It moves into areas of your yard that you didn't want it to move. And sin moves into areas of your life that you are going to be devastated by. The title of this message is The Troubling Side of Secret Individual Sin. Secret Individual Sin. Here's the trouble is never secret or individual in its consequences. That's the troubling side of secret individual sin. It it never stays where you want it to. And the consequences never affect the things you wanted it to affect. Regardless of how much you may try to protect and shield, secret individual sin will go further than you want it to go. Maybe there's a good question to ask here as well in regarding to Achan's family and all of his children being destroyed with him in his sin. Is, is this how God normally operates? Does, does God do this frequently? This, no, actually, surprise, surprise, no, he doesn't. He actually tells us in in Deuteronomy 24, 16, and he he seems to forbid this kind of thing from happening. A, A son shall not suffer for the crimes of his father, nor a father for the crimes of his son. 
So what's going on here? Why is God walking against His very own Word? Well, it's, it's not because God is angrier here than He is today or when He gave the law in Deuteronomy 24. No, I'd say this. God is dealing severely with His people here in their sin because of where they are. They are a young nation and allowing sin to remain will have devastating consequences on their nation early. And God's covenant promises will be thrown off. God is dealing severely with sin because of His faithfulness. And perhaps here, the, the calamity, the disaster, the consequences that Israel gets to see in Achan and his family has a, has a bit of a pedagogical point to it, right? God wants to teach his nation, his young child Israel, about sin and its devastating consequences. Secret individual sin will never have secret or individual consequences. Look at the life and family of Achan for reference. He wants to say, look at the trouble that sin in the heart will cause. God is saying, look, I may seem harsh here, but you can be sure that your sin will be harsher. And that is why I'm dealing this way with you. But maybe some of you would want to ask, does he have to destroy the whole family? Well, for one thing, I don't have a lot of difficulty believing, for one, that Achan's wife did not know about Achan's sin. I happen to have a wife, and I understand how that could work. She could have been aware of it, and maybe a part of it in some sense. And maybe even his children were old enough, perhaps in one sense. But that doesn't really explain why his ox needs to die. My position, actually, is just look at the the parallel between the destruction of the Canaanites in Joshua 6 and the destruction of Achan and his family in Joshua 7. They're, They're parallel, down to the ox. It's as if the narrator is trying to say and doesn't doesn't want to even give you an exception, like, well, his sin was his wife was in on the sin as well. He, he just wants to say, look at this, look at this. There are parallel situations. Achan, even though he is from Judah, is truly a Canaanite, isn't he? And for that, he suffers the same judgment of the Canaanites. Matter of fact, notice how he acts. R- remember how the story goes. Joshua tells Israel what they're going to do. And then the lots begin to take tribe, uh, family, clan, just kind of working their way down towards Achan. And notice Achan never runs out and says, I have sinned, and here is what I have done. I cannot hide it from the Lord. To the very end, just like Jericho, he is shut up and shut in. He is acting like a Canaanite through and through. And he and his family is destroyed like a Canaanite. Through and through. God is saying, be sure your sin will find you out and it will be bringing trouble on you and everything that you love. We could draw a line of application here. 
that God wants us to draw, you should be more troubled by sin in your life than you are. That's what God wants you, to come away from this passage saying to yourself, I need to be more troubled by sin. I cannot be at peace with anything in my life. I need to fear the devastation of secret sin and confess it and repent of it as quickly as I can. But there's one more way that this story is meant to trouble. We should also be troubled by sin's atonement. And now, I am relying a little bit on extended revelation here. But let me just say this, in closing. If you are troubled by the death of the innocents in this story, you should be more troubled by the death of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, today. That should cause you more trouble in your life. You should love the fact that God treats the many according to one. And God treats the one according to the many. You should love that. That should trouble you into worship and joy and confession and thanks. Pastor Steve read it earlier. Romans 5, 17 says this, For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Jesus says death teaches you the serious nature of your sin, doesn't it? Your sin deserved His suffering, His blame, His agony, His sorrow. That is what your sin deserved. That's troubling. That is heavy. That is a judgment that I do not want to face I cannot believe that Christ would save me and suffer for me. That is what your sin does and troubles you in it. And Jesus' resurrection also teaches you about the serious nature of your salvation as well, does it not? You have been justified. You have been risen with Christ you stand before God as if you have never sinned and you are in the process of sanctification and you have eternity in security because of the sufficiency of Christ's death on your behalf. Yours was the sin. Yours was the trespass. Yours was the crime. And his was the pain. His was the sorrow. His was the grief. His was the death. His was the judgment. His was the wrath. 
And this grace of Christ is available to even the vilest sinner who truly believes. Is it not? Achan will be forever etched and remembered in our minds as the true definition of a Canaanite. But also, in the pages of Joshua, we have the true description of the Israelite of Israelites. And it is a surprise to us because it is a Canaanite herself. And a prostitute at that who saw the just judgment of God. And instead of running and hiding from that just judgment, she ran to her future judge to be her present Savior. And for that, she is the Israelite of Israelites. Let's pray. Our God, our Savior, on You lay all of our blame. And on us remains all of Your righteousness. Get into our hearts and do some operating work on our desires and our affections, even here, and cause us to never be the same. Cause us to run from sin and run to you. We pray this all in the name of you. Amen.